Who made who? I should have found that three weeks ago. Hello, this is um, William Fink. This is the Christagenia Open Forum. It's Monday, February 14th, 2011. I don't have a whole lot tonight. There's a few things I want to talk about. That was one of them. It's been um, nearly a month since I presented my paper, The End of Genesis Heresy. It's still without response. Eli James has made nothing but emotional appeals based on what he insists must be. It's Jamesianity. It's not Christianity. Luke 3.38 says that Adam was the son of God, not the son of Og. My ancestors never lived in caves. There's nobody between Yahweh and Adam. Last week, I presented um, Jeremiah chapter 31, or more specifically, an elucidation of the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 29, it talks about the house of Israel and the house of Judah being sown with the seed of beast. And it's been reported to me that many people, um, that E.Y. James did cover this, this chapter in Jeremiah the other night, and many people sat by listening to him do so, I believe it was Saturday, and they never asked him, after he admitted that Jeremiah 31 was all about race mixing, they never asked him how the beasts could possibly be saved. It's a shame that um, Eli's audience, and some of them may be here, let him get away with that. Speaking out of both sides of his mouth and that double-mindedness, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I just had to comment on those things. I don't have any response to um, my Genesis Revisited Angels and Beasts presentation either. They just... My detractors simply think I'm mean and think that Eli's a swell guy, so they could sit at the trough and drink the swill if they want. I can't do it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the... Um, I had an email. Actually, I had an email a couple of weeks ago, but my emails are very, very... Uh, I got 12, 1,300 emails piled up in, in one mailbox and 600 piled up in another one, and I'm just not getting to them. I'll take this opportunity to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah, you know, they love to point to this Ethiopian eunuch. And, and it's so easy to prove that the Ethiopian eunuch was a Judean and not an Ethiopian. We see the story of... The, well, we see the apostles basically together until the stoning of Stephen when they are dispersed. And it talks about Acts chapter 8. They're, they're dispersed at the be, end of Acts chapter 7. Stephen is stoned, and the apostles are dispersed at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And it talks about the, um, a, a little about the um, acts of Peter and John and Philip in, in this dispersion when, when the disciples were scattered after the stoning of Stephen. And at the end of cha Acts chapter 8, we see that Philip is called by Yahweh to go to Gaza, what, which is in, in the south of Palestine on the coast. Gaza actually is a... Is a um, it's a Persian word that made its way in, into Greek, and it, it, it means treasury. And we see that this Ethiopian eunuch had been appointed over the, um, the storehouses of the Queen of Ethiopia. Since the word Gaza means treasury, it's only, well, it's quite obvious that that's why he was working in the storehouses for this queen, and, and that's where he was working. He wasn't actually working in Ethiopia. He was in her employ in Gaza, where Philip was sent 
to meet him. The Ethiopian eunuch was over all her treasure, Acts 8.27. Well, well, you know, it's, it's real easy to see that this man was a Judean. First, I'll offer the proof. Later on, in Acts chapter 10, we see that Peter is given this vision, and, and there's a very um, elaborate story told about how Peter is to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and Cornelius is a Roman. And Peter's given this vision about clean and unclean animals, and, and then he's sent to this home of, of this Roman, and Peter realizes the vision it was to um, well, it was meant to encourage him to speak to this man and, and to deliver the gospel to his house, even though they weren't circumcised Judeans. Well, if we go to Acts 15:7, I'll read this from the King James Version. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the nations, or Gentiles, by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter is telling us that he was the first of the apostles to preach gospel to non-circumcised Judeans. And if that didn't happen until Acts chapter 10... And the Ethiopian eunuch can't possibly be a non-circumcised Judean, or Peter would not have been able to take the credit for being the first to preach to non-circumcised Judeans, as he did at Acts 15, verse 7. So let's go back and look at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip sent to Gaza, and on his way to Gaza, he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch, Sitting by the side of the road, in his chariot, Philip's told by the Spirit to draw near to and join to that chariot where the Ethiopian eunuch is. And he finds this Ethiopian eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, I don't think just any Ethiopian would be reading the prophet Isaiah. He was also on his way back from the temple where... um. All Judeans were, were all men of Israel un, until the deportations and, and the people of the men of Judah who returned from Babylon continued in the tradition as we see in the gospel. All the men of Israel were told three times a year at the feasts that they were to appear in the temple. It was part of the law. So this Ethiopian eunuch certainly would have been on his way back from the temple from one of the feasts and he was reading Isaiah. This is not a black man. This is not even an Ethiopian. This is a Judean in the employ of Queen Candace of the Ethiopians, who is working at her treasury or her storehouse, storehouses in Gaza, not in Ethiopia. That's ridiculous. Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip for guidance to, to understand the scripture, and Philip explained it to him, and, and then he was converted. This man had to be a Judean, and he definitely was not the first non-Judean to receive the gospel. That didn't happen until Acts chapter 10. So the proof is in the context. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. I think that about covers it. It's real simple. The Ethiopian eunuch was a Judean employed by the Ethiopians. There, were, um, there was an island at one time. Well, this, the island's still there. The people aren't. There was an island called Elephantine. 
It's in the um, it, it's near the fourth cataract of the Nile. It was at one time considered the southernmost extremity of Egypt. There was an outpost there. The outpost was um, and by Judean mercenaries all the way back in Persian times. Though it's very likely that maybe even the Babylonians had stationed there, stationed them there. But but either the Babylonians or the Persians after the Persian takeover of Babylon, stationed these Judean mercenaries, who were probably from the um, deportations to Babylon, they had to be, they stationed them at Elephantine to guard the southern border of Egypt, and there's something called the Elephantine papyri that were discovered about a hundred years ago. The Elephantine papyri actually have a... Um, a record of a temple being built, of a model of the temple being built at Elephantine so that the Judeans who were stationed there could worship their God. Now, I don't know how long they, they were there and that temple was later destroyed, but it's very clear that there was a large settlement of Judeans at Elephantine 500 years before Christ. I would think, I can't prove it, but I would think that that's why these Ethiopians claim to have a, um, the Ark of the Covenant. Because if you build a model of the, of the temple, and you understand anything about the temple, you have to build a model of the Ark. And it's certainly not the real Ark of the Covenant. They might have that model or, or, or something remnant from it. I wouldn't doubt it. The, um... Evidently, a lot of the Judeans ended up mixing with the local population, the Nubians, the Aborigines, the, the Negroes and blacks in Africa, and that's why we have Falasha Jews today. I, I certainly wouldn't consider them true Israelites, right, or true Judahites, that, that's for sure. They're, they're obviously of a mixed race and, and no longer acceptable to God or to us. I just thought I'd throw that in there. It, it's so easy to prove that the Ethiopian eunuch was not an Ethiopian by race, but a Judean by race, simply by looking at Acts chapter 10 and reading Acts 15.7. That's all. Okay, this is an open forum. I, I know Robert, Bob in Pennsylvania, wanted to talk about history, so I'm going to unmute him first, even though he hasn't asked to. And, and if anybody wants to, um, want, wants to discuss Genesis, wants to discuss the Revelation series I've been doing, or continuing, or anything else, this is an open forum. Please request to talk by right-clicking on your name, and, and I'll turn your microphone on. You can't have an open forum without open forum participants. Hey, Bill, I'm ready to go back into my Judeo-Christian fashion here. Oh, that would be a horrible thing, Robert. Yeah, they had, a, they had all these great explanations for all the symbolism in Revelation. I just thought I'd like to know that. Well, well, that's nice, but if, if we don't get the explanations for the symbolism from the Old Testament, then, then we should just jump off our roof, right? That's true. No, How are you doing? I, I, okay, I was just trying to piece together. I, I have your document printed out, and I've listened to the uh, your Revelation 8, and um, I find it a bit difficult to piece it together from a above-the-forest standpoint. I don't understand why, so you'll have to um, explain okay. the problems to me. Well, uh, it, because it's completely foreign from what I originally learned. You know, I originally learned that there's a seven-year period and all this stuff's taking place right now. So if I'm going back in history now and I don't have a, a big basis uh, for this, 
you easily throw this around or a huge section from six chapters six through eight as being the fall of Rome. And then we get into a bunch of war stuff starting in about nine, uh, what is it, eight and nine, where there's still remnants of battles taking place between Vandals, the Goths, and um, I'm having a hard time picturing this whole thing from the, the, the symbolism that's in here. Mountains burning and uh, blood and then the skies dulled. You had one section in here where you talked about the sun going actually going out. I don't know what that was related to. Is there any other historical basis for that? I read a whole passage from Procopius. Yeah, but is that it? I mean, what was the reason for darkening? Is there volcanic activity or something? Well, well you know something? I, I, I made a passing remark that, that that could probably be the explanation for it, but I didn't. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not a geologist, right? I mean, we have this this prophecy that the sun and, and the moon and, and the stars are going to be lose a third of their brightness, and and we have a clear um, witness in Procopius that in 537 A.D. that's exactly what happened, and, and that coincides with the exact time in the historical timeline that Justinian it is that um. That star fallen from heaven that turns a third of the waters bitter, right? And, and Justinian, because he sought to take Italy and North Africa back for the empire, he, he basic, that basically caused a lot of damage not only to the native peoples, the Roman and Greek peoples that were already there, but it also caused a lot of damage to the, um, to the Vandals and the Goths who, who um, had invaded those lands. And, and he made the... Basically, the um, because the the bishop of Rome under Justinian and and because Justinian took back Italy, the empire, he was able to appoint the bishop of Rome to be the leading bishop over all other Christian bishops. Justinian basically made the world safe for Catholicism, is what he did. Roman Catholicism. That's a, exactly the effect of that, the way I see it. Okay. And, and that. That year of the dull sun was was exactly while Justinian reigned, I thirty seven B C, the tenth year of Justinian, according to Procopius. I don't. It's absolutely clear to me. If I fail to explain it clearly enough, please let me know. And, and um, I think I, it's my poor my poor historical background is, is is the problem. I just have a very difficult time reading Revelation and piecing the historical. Uh, stuff in there. It just doesn't. It doesn't fit right now because I don't have enough background. Well, well, that's why I wrote these commentaries and papers is to try to give you the the, the background, right? But, yeah, but um, I'm going to have to. I'm going to probably have to read them over like a lot of times and get some other information. In Revelation chapter six with the green horse, with, with the green horse, well, which is also known as the pale horse, right? But the word really does mean green, and and to me, green indicates sickness in in animals, right? Yes. In mammals, anyway. Maybe not in amphibians, but certainly in mammals, right? But, well, the, um, the, with the green horse, we had the decline of the empire. And, and when they started to buy off the Goths, they were done. And, and that was in, in the middle of the 5th century BC, AD, right? They started to try to bribe the Goths. And, and that Rome was sacked in 455 by the Vandals. And, and then a Goth declared himself the ruler of all, all Italy. Odoacer, the Gothic chieftain, declared himself ruler of all Italy in 476. Rome was basically done at that point. But Revelation chapter 7 
takes a little pause and assures us that 12,000 people from each tribe are going to survive, are going to be sealed or survive the um, tribulation that's coming upon the Roman Empire at that time. I don't think that that sealing has anything to do with the, the, the Germanic tribes of Northern Europe, and that's where the tribe of Dan happens to be, who have nothing to do with this tribulation coming upon Rome. You know, it's just a guarantee that, that our race is going, that a, a sufficient number of our race is going to make it through this tribulation in, in those lands that the tribulation is coming upon. Now, now Revelation chapter 8 is describing the actual invasions themselves. And it's in poetic language, but basically the um, Goths looted and pillaged all, all of Italy. And, and the Vandals looted and pillaged all of Spain and Africa and much of Gaul. And, and um, the Alans, along with them, and the Swebi. Vandals crossed into Africa and, and destroyed m many of the Roman settlements in Africa and took them for themselves. And, and took all the booty and probably all the women and, and whatever else they could get their hands on. And, and then the next stage of Revelation 8 destroys the, um, the destruction of shipping and, and the turmoil in the sea. And that's exactly what the Vandals did. They commenced a... a um, they absconded with the navy, the fleet that they found at Carthage, and, and used that to, to um, raid the coast of Sicily and, and all the shipping they could in the Mediterranean, and, and defeat several large Roman navies. If we talk about genetic pollution from this time, who are we talking, the Moors, the Huns? Well, we have no genetic pollution. I mean, there's always some Canaanites in the Mediterranean, right? And, and there's some Jewish slaves in, in southern Italy, right? And, and they're there. There's no doubt. Now, now, the Judean slaves, a lot of them, I believe, probably were Jews. Because it was the Edomite stock at Jerusalem that was doing most of the rebelling. Okay? But a lot of them probably weren't. A lot of them were probably traditional Judahites. However, we have these, these, these Judahite slaves and Arab slaves in, in southern Italy and in Sicily. And, and that's where most of the, um, the landlord absent absentee estates were, where, where the people that owned the estates basically lived in Rome and, and were absentee landlords, right? That these, these farms and, and these um, vineyards in, in Italy. Now, the, um, the genetic pollution didn't really occur. I, I mean, even the slaves were only a small part of the population, and most of the slaves were white. Most of the Roman slaves were Britons, Judahites, Parthians, Greeks, Germans, most of the Roman slaves were, a lot of them weren't, but most of them were. Some of them were Egyptians, Edomites, other varieties of Canaanite, Arabs. But the real genetic pollution in, in um, southern Italy didn't come until a few centuries later with the Arab invasions. Okay. You know, that, that it really changed the face of, of Italy and Sicily. All right, so we're up to like 500 A.D. right now? And, and Northern Africa, because Northern Africa was all white. But well, right with with the um, the Gothic invasions with, with, and the invasions of the Vandals and and the sea escapades and the taking of Carthage, right? And and the, the star falling from heaven, I believe, is Justinian, and now we're in 527 A.D. And, and the um, the year of the dull sun was 537 A.D. And that covers Revelation chapter eight. All right. Now, what about this thousand years of peace then? 
But, well, no, 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 no. There, there's nothing about the thousand years that it says it's going to be a thousand years of peace, right? Because there's well, a lot of other prophecies. But the thousand years of, of the reign of the saints with Christ is basically the feudal period. But there was no usury in Europe. The Jews held, held no public offices in Europe. And the devil had no control of the children of God. The Jew was basically excoriated from society. I'll talk about that at length, but not for another 12 chapters. That's in chapter 20. But we still had wars during that period. We still had the, the same period, what was the period of the second beast, and, and the, the, the end of the 2,520 years of punishment of the children of Israel. What were, yet, you know, you have many prophecies converging. You know, people read Revelation 20 and think that's a thousand years of peace. That's not a thousand. That, that doesn't guarantee a thousand years of peace. Well, something better than what you would would you think is going on. Is that well, yeah, we had a Jew-free world. Yeah, well, it certainly doesn't sound to me like it was a wonderful being a Jew-free world. It was a mess anyhow. Well, why? The feudal period was a lot better than, than anything that we have today. I, I go back to feudalism in a minute. Your taxes were only 20%, no matter how much crop you, vet, you grew. There was no usury. It was a Christian society. That there was virtually no prostitution, no gambling, no drug problems. Yes, there were wars. But, you know, there's a lot of other biblical prophecies going on at the same time. First, Israel was to be punished for 2,520 years. That didn't end un until the time that we, um, that we began this, this modern period of self-government. And, and that's a whole different story. So, so our punishment was still going on. That then we have the, um, the, the prophecy to David... Because he took the wife of Uriah the Hittite, that the sword would never depart from his house. You want to know why the kings of Europe have done nothing but stab each other in the back and make war with each other? Because David was guaranteed that the sword would never depart from his house. There's a lot of other prophecies that, that come into play. But the thousand, year, the thousand years in Revelation 20, it begins with the, the locking of the dragon into the pit dragon, Satan, was bound for a thousand years. That's what the thousand year period represents. It's not a thousand years of peace. It's the binding of the dragon for the thousand years. It's the binding of Satan for a thousand years. That's what it's all about. And that's exactly what happened when Theodosius II excluded the Jews from European society. Okay, so I guess, I guess it means it's a complete misconception of what I would think of a thousand years but, well, you still got that Catholic thousand years of, of the lion laying with the bullock, right? And, and well, well, that's not what that means. I mean, it just, I would think of a period that was a little bit less, uh, how would I say, war-oriented. Because we're basically, you're basically talking from about 500 A.D. to somewhere around 1500 A.D. Right. That's the time that the Jews were basically totally excluded from European society. If we want to understand that the Jews are Satan, then we have to understand that Revelation 20 and the binding of Satan into the pit is talking about the Jews. And that's exactly what happened around five, 500 A.D. And, and it lasted until around 1500 A.D. where the De Medici popes, and, and they were Jews, and, and it could be pretty much established they were Jews. They were bankers and they were doctors. And, and they redefined usury in the church, which allowed the Jews to build up power in Europe again. 
And once they built up power in Europe again, what did we get? The French Revolution in 1800. And that's when Satan was definitely let out of the pit. I mean, it was a process, right? It didn't happen overnight. Well, that's the point that you previously said where they more or less got citizenship. Yeah, right. That's what happened. With the French Revolution, the Jews were, were given full, full and free citizenship along with all of the Christians of France. And, and that was a first in Europe. That was, a first, that was the first time that happened since they were excoriated from society over, over a thousand, well over a thousand years before that. So is this the Byzantine Empire time? Well, it, it's during that period. I mean, the Byzantine Empire is, for the most part, parallel. But, yeah, you know, the Byzantine Empire was um, ended in four, 1453. And it was about, it took about a hundred years to kill it, right? It was early Byzantine emperors that were the ones that excoriated the Jews. But, um, and, and that started with Constantinus II and, and through the time of Theodosius, Theodosius I or Theodosius II. Where Jews, uh, laws were passed that Jews could not own Christians as slaves. Jews could not loan money to Christians at usury. Christians couldn't loan, Christians couldn't borrow money at usury, and, and Jews could not hold offices in government. They couldn't hold public office. And that basically, that basically stopped the Jews from being able to operate in Europe. Now, now some of the medieval kings kept Jews around, and, and they were forced to live in separate districts and ghettos, and, and it was Charlemagne that let them into the empire, but they were, they were still excoriated from society, and, and they were still forced to live in ghettos, and, and they could um, only live in a land at the behest of the king, or, or the prince, or whoever was, in, in, you know, whoever was the ruler of a particular land. So as far as the hideousness of the, quote, uh, feudal period that the Jews teach us, uh, you don't believe that that's true? No, it, it was hideous for the Jews. Well, that's probably the case. I didn't think about it that way. The, the feudal period was, was probably a bright spot in, um, in, in the history of our race, in, in many ways. It's a 100% Jewish-American society today. Um, suppose that could be the case. You know, the Jew isn't happy unless everything's monetized and unless everything operates on usury, right? That's when the Jew is happy. And, and anything that's contrary to that is evil. That's why the Jew hates fascism. That's why the Jew hates feudalism. Dark Ages weren't dark. The, the Dark Ages were, were a time of um, virtual self-rule in, in much of Europe, but where the local tribal chieftains but were the ones that had a say. And, and, and basically, that's probably a, a much better um, situation than what we have under the Jewish capitalist system. How much power did the Roman Catholic Church have over that? I've always understood that they were kind of responsible for a lot of the ignorance of the people, that they crushed any kind of intellect that was not within their within their agreed uh, uh, mind. Now, the church didn't become really anti-learned, and I'm going to get into this a little bit on Friday. The church didn't really become anti-intellectual and anti-learning until, um, until the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Church became really tyrannic. If, if you read Bede, in, in, the time, in the days of Bede, the um, classical learning was, was relished, and, and most clerics understood Greek and Latin, and, and they, they, um, Bede had translated the Gospel of John into the Saxon tongue himself. And, and many men translated various parts of the Bible in, into the vernacular tongue. 
But the church, and by the 11th and 12th centuries, they didn't like that because they saw that it cost them control. So they started to um, ban the scriptures. And, and I'd also like to, to point out that um, if there wasn't a thousand-year period there uh, in which the, the Jews were basically excoriated from uh, um, white Christian society at the time, there is no way that Christianity could have flourished to the degree that it did uh, in order for it to survive as long as it has. Well, absolutely. I think that some of the um, <clears throat> early Catholic Christians, if I have to call them that, had the wrong idea about trying to convert the Jews as a race and mass to Christianity. They, if Christ couldn't, couldn't convert them, who can, right? So, so that was a wrong-headed idea. But they did the right thing by excoriating them from society. They certainly did the right thing there. Right, and then all you need to do is... is uh read some of the precepts and some of the the writings of Martin Luther uh by the you know he, he came out it was what the, the mid to late 14th uh 15th century where you know, he came out uh directly against the Jews and that's when they were starting to weasel their way back into uh, our society absolutely but well I did a pretty um I, I don't know I thought it was pretty complete program with Clifton back two years ago on, on Revelation chapter 20. I don't know if it was two years ago, but it was close. It was a long time ago. I don't... I'll probably go over it again and and maybe go back through that original program and, and see what I could have possibly... see see what I could have missed and, and try to fortify some of the weak points if, if I find any. And, and um, basically, my presentation is going to be the same when I get to Revelation chapter 20. Yeah, I can see where you would just tweak a couple things, but um, yeah, I mean that's. Uh, I, I I was actually really hoping that you would uh, redo Revelation chapter twenty, just you know, just to make sure that uh, you know all your you got all your eyes dotted and your T's crossed concerning it, especially since you're doing the entire uh, Revelation series. But well, right, and I'm going to do it right through to the end. Um, no matter how much I'm, I'm able to elucidate from it. But one, one thing I, I plan on pointing out in Revelation chapter 20, and, and not to pick on them, but to show people that, you know, we can't have icons and put people on pedestals, is Bertrand Comparé had actually, um, he conflicted himself. He, he's conflicted with himself. If you read Clifton's Revelation series, the um, Bertrand Comparé Revelation series that Clifton transcribed and presents on his website, Bertrand Comparé contradicts himself with, with um, the end time and the destruction of the enemies of God and Revelation chapter 20. And anybody that thinks that this thousand years is in the future has no choice but to contradict themselves when they present the revelation and, and its fulfillment. They have no choice. If you know, we're told after the thousand years is over that Satan would go out and deceive all the nations. If that's not going on right now, I quit. If that's not what's been going on these last two hundred years in our history, I quit. I'm worthless. I quit. I'm going to throw my Bible away. It's exactly what's going on. It's exactly what's been going on for two hundred years. Yeah, the Judeo, the Judeo, the Judeo Jew interpretation would. Would would attempt to try to convince us that the Almighty is a schizophrenic joker or something, you know? He wouldn't he wouldn't come back and but well right if if the, the 
Gog and Magog are going into the lake of fire. They ain't coming back after a thousand years because death and hell are going into the same lake of fire. And, and if Gog and Magog are coming back, then so are death and hell. And, and then we got a problem. Well, we may as well throw our Bibles away. Yeah, exactly. That, that's like saying, oh, yeah, the niggers are going to be all be saved. We're all going to be together with the niggers in heaven. Well, I wouldn't want to go there if there's a nigger there. Right. Well, well, right. I said that the other night. If there's, if there's Negroes in heaven, I'm not going. It, it's not happening. Pull me into the lake of fire. I'd rather be in a lake of fire. If we look at the U.S. bill, the Jews basically completely took control of this country in 1913. Yes, completely. They had a and, great and amount then, of undue influence before that. that. Point, after that point, would you say something like the 1920 mass immigration? There's a bunch of Jews in that. Oh, well, yeah, but there were already a bunch of Jews in the 1880s mass immigrations into this country. But yes, there were even more in the 1920s. And most of them passed themselves off as Sicilians or Hungarians or Romanians. And, and they were really Jews and gypsies. Well, yeah, I mean, the Benai Brith back in 1855 accounted for over 550,000 members at that point in the U.S., but well, right. So, so we we you know I'm 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 basically a proponent that there has to be a lot more than three percent of the population here is Jews. That there's got to be ten to fifteen percent, and and I lean towards fifteen. Yeah, I would be willing to think that at this point in in uh, in our history, we're probably outnumbered by the Jews. Yeah, that's that's fifteen uh, percent. It's very conservative from what I've looked at. I yeah. I would say that's probably minimum. So you know, you know, you got this this fanfare going around. We're going to be a minority in 2050. I think we're way past that point already at this day and age. Oh, I well, yeah. When you really consider what's really white and and what's not, we are all already a minority. Well, if it's 15 percent Jews, I'd wager to say the other 80 percent are Jew lovers. Well, if you would look at at the the um, U.S. government censuses. Uh, when you see what they describe as white, uh, it includes Hispanics and Jews. And, right, it's incredible. Uh, and Arabs. Uh, and uh, I guess it also makes a, a, like an aside statement somewhere. I know I caught it on one of their footnotes uh, as to uh, people who were predominantly white, who basically you know, didn't have proof of their pure white heritage and, and uh, are just being labeled white simply by, you know, being looking fair skinned. Well, well, Bob, I really believe that they all screwed up. I really believe that, that you're the dull son um, pegs the interpretation of the rest of Revelation chapters eight and nine. And, and if if the rest of the if the interpretation of chapters eight and nine are correct, then the interpretation of the chapters which precede is correct. Uh, all of it's perfectly clear in history to me. I, I'm, I mean, if, um, if there are well, still I'm, problems with it, I'd, I'd like to know. I'm not saying there's problems with it. I'm just saying that from, from my perspective, it's, it's a little bit hard to grasp um, from where I came from. Well, we're not denying you that, Bob, that's for sure. I mean, there's certain things that a lot of us have a tough time getting past. But, you know, that's... Uh, I mean, that's that's what scholarship is all about. I mean, from a big picture standpoint, I can see that, that uh, the absurdity of Revelations being a small period of history it just it didn't make sense to me. But that was cleared up as soon as I figured out that the white races were the true Israelites. 
Oh, and right. The entire revelation is basically Eurocentric. Well, once you, yeah. understand the inter once you understand the events that are being described. And that's a point I tried to make in my presentation last week, that, that once you understand that the, the revelation is talking about the Aryan peoples of Europe, then you know that the people of God are the Aryan peoples of Europe, and not the Jews. And, and the, the, and the not whole millennium issue with, with, um, uh, you know, with the concept that that is a, a period of a thousand years that hasn't even arrived yet or that it's a thousand year reign of, of Yahshua, well, then you're, you're basically uh, contradicting Revelation. And where would that thousand years fit? It wouldn't fit in where it's actually placed in Revelation uh, toward the end of uh, chapter 20, but before the point at which Yahshua does return and uh, and and harvest the tares. Well, I, I, it, it's been clear to me that the thousand years is over. It just is so different than what I was taught that uh, it's a, a tough concept. But um, I look at our position right now, and it's not a very good position. Being is that uh, anyone you you discuss this stuff, I've you know I've several friends recently I've been discussing this stuff with and. They are just there's no there's no way to explain it in the sense that you can light them up. It's 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 I am still amazed that there's actually a group of people on TeamSpeak that get it that even understand the message. Because I don't have well, anybody I can talk to here. It's still the same way. I mean I I I just discussed this with another friend and he's just in there with the Episcopals and all the beasts and everything else in Philly. Well, you have to be hey, a seed line to absolutely understand it. Yeah, but they can't even get the concept of the Jews evil, even though the Jews controlling every position. I've given them uh, Mike stuff, all the websites. They look at it and no connect. Well, yeah, well, Bob, one thing you can try, I mean, you, you may have already done this, is that tell them, look, Israel is not a church. It's a nation can't remember what Clifton said the other night, but it, I thought it was pretty good about the church, quote, 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 the church. Are you going to a church? I always get that one from these guys, too. What church are you going to? Well, not only not only is it a nation, but nation also means race as well. So if we go through See, this, Bill, Bill, I wanted to go back just one more time on this. This list of, of uh, groups that were battling during the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, which groups in here? I mean, the Huns are obviously not white. Yes, they are. What do you mean the Huns aren't white? Who said they're not white? The Huns were white. I I, I talked about that at great length on um in the last program. The Huns are definitely white. The Huns were tall and fair. They were white. That they were and and Procopius equates the Massagetae that we know to be Germanic people, and he equates the um Chimerians, the ancient Kimeroi. To Huns. He says that the Huns were the ancient Kimroy, basically. I have the citations. They're upstairs. I, I have my classics upstairs. Okay, I must have read this wrong then. Oh, the Huns are definitely white. That You read it wrong. You skimmed it. That The um, Compare tried to say that the Huns were not white, and I was answering him. He was wrong. Okay. He tried to identify that star that fell from heaven... Um, with, with Attila the Hun and not Justinian in, in chapter 8, and I disproved that. I not only disproved it because Attila the Hun was white, I, and, and showed that the, um, the, the ancient commentators 
that did that tried to say that he was not white, that described him as a short, yellow, mongoloid-looking runt, that they were biased. And they were biased. There's no doubt that Cassiodorus and, and Jordanus were both biased. Uh, now, Procopius is the, be is the better historian, and Procopius is backed up by the Edda and by the Nibelungen lead. The Nibelungen lead portrays Attila as a basically noble character. Well, it's that repetition, you know, um, Christ was a Jew boy, uh, Abraham was a Jew boy, Isaac was a Jew boy, Jacob was a Jew boy. It's that repetition that just just have to... Hans had to be part of the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, because that's who was to destroy Rome. And, and we see that Rome was sacked three times. It was sacked by the Goths, the Huns, and the Vandals. And, and that mountain is Israel. And that was the Germanic peoples of, of Eurasia and, and Europe. So what about the Moors? The Moors were probably originally white Libyans. You know, Mauritania is basically a, a, a Roman period name. The Greeks knew all of that as Libya. And they knew all of the people as Libby Phoenicians. And I could go back to Aeschylus, the tragic poet, and show you citations that would lead one to believe that Aeschylus considered the people of Libya to be racially homogenous with the other peoples of the Mediterranean at the time. So you're saying that the major pollution in Europe is basically the Arabs? Yes, it started with the Arabs. Blacks are probably a more recent thing? Yes. And that was probably also the fault of the Arabs, who were big in the black. They were the black slave traders. They, they were the slave traders. They supplied the Jews with most of the slaves to bring here to America. Those, those Arabs, they were a mixture of mongrel, Turk, and, and uh, white. Well, well, yeah, they were a lot of things. That's why they're Arabs. They're mixed, right? That's what the word means. Yeah, just confusion. And, and I know some Arabs. I, I mean, I've personally met Jordanians and Syrians that, that a lot of um, unsuspecting white people might think were white. If you really look at them, you know better. Well, but. There's a lot like that. I mean, there's an awful lot in, in the U.S. now. Right. Blonde hair, blue, blonde hair, blue eyes, it looked, you just never would guess. Most of the, um, yeah, you know, there were some Arab and Egyptian slaves and, and Edomite and Canaanite slaves in Rome. There were some Canaanite inhabitants in, in, in northern Africa and, and um, the Levant and, and Arabia and Egypt, no doubt. But most of the racial pollution in, in Europe comes with the Arabs, and that's with the 6th century. You see, even Rome, for most of its history, this broke down in the 3rd century A.D., and, and I quoted that last week, week before last. Even with Rome, Rome had strict laws, even amongst white nations, concerning who, could it, who had rights of intermarriage and who didn't. And Rome always maintained those laws. You couldn't just go marry anybody you wanted to, not even under the Roman Empire. You know, Bill, this all makes sense in the Middle East, uh, how the Arabs went from a small tribe that, and then it just ballooned into conquering the entire Middle East, and it became the entire Middle East. Right. And now all those other tribes that existed, the Persians, Parthians, Cappadocians. They're basically uh, all Arabs. Yeah, they became mixed with them, so they became Arabs too. Right, because Islam refuses all racial distinctions. Islam is like a, a good religion for the Jewish melting pot, right? Well, Jews wrote it, so now you know why. So, so let me get... 
let's assume uh, that uh, we all get racially mixed. Eventually, we're going to look like Arabs. Oh, yes, we would. Exactly. We'd look like um, Egypt in, in 100 years. That's a horrible thought. Of course it is. Look at Egypt. Light-skinned no, people, dark-skinned people, frizzy-haired people, curly-haired people. I, I don't know. It's horrible. Yeah, they're not the most attractive looking. You're going to end up looking like Obama. <laughs> worse. That's, That's worse. You, you know, Bill, I think it would, it would do us good to uh, mention them. I don't know, do something, talk about the merits of uh, the feudal society and serfdom, if there are any. Well, well, there definitely are, because you worked your land, you, you, were, you were required to give a certain amount of the increase from your land, but the rest of your time was yours. Assuming you owned the land, but many people were just... Oh, no, whoa, 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 we're talking about serfdom. Of course you didn't own the land. Yeah. The land yes. owned, owned you. It, it had, um... There's no freedom. It had its drawbacks because because there were some vile practices. You, you know, a lot of the lords of the land practiced the um, custom of the first night, right? Where, where he got your wife first when you got married. And, and that's pretty vile. And, and that can be actually... Um, that's actually also mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's how old that is. That goes back to about well, that's pagan. 3000 B.C. Don't the rabbis, Jews, do that also among the Jews? I don't know. I've heard it, but I don't. <laughs> I don't know. But the feudal system, I mean, economically, I think the feudal system was probably a very fair system. No, it wasn't perfect, but we've never had a perfect economic system. As soon as we, the only time we had a perfect economic system, what was for the couple of hundred years in, in between the law being given on Mount Sinai, and and um, Saul being made king, right? Which reminds me, Bill, you haven't, you never discussed uh, why God made him king, uh, as opposed to, and, and why he re regretted it later. Well, right. I, I don't, I, I don't believe that he regretted it in, in um, human terms, right? We'll, we'll discuss that one day. Maybe I'll make that the topic of discussion next week. I want to go back and reread the account before I run my mouth, right? I'm only human. Good idea. We're going to have worse than a feudal system today because you never really own your property at all, being as you have to, again, pay property taxes. We don't even own ourselves. Why they run around forcing vaccinations on infants and things like that, driver's licenses, stuff like that. We haven't learned enough to be able to argue way out of the jurisdiction question. And most people are not smart enough to know how to do that, so they end up being slaves. Yeah, it's worse than for feudal days. Well, feudalism, you know, the um, taxes were paid in kind, and you paid on your increase. In other words, if you, um, well, well, today Americans work and earn a salary, and they pay taxes on their, on, on their salary. But their salary is not necessarily their increase. Even in the Bible, you pay taxes on your increase. So if you started the year with 10 cows and you finished the year with 20, you've got to give up 20% of your increase. So you give up two cows, not four. But if you start the year with 10 cows and you finish the year with 14, you don't give up two cows because your increase is only four. With the U.S. government, if you start the year with 10 cows and get 90 cows during the year, but only finish the year with 12, 
But well, you still have to pay the tax on ninety. <laughs> so you're just screwed. Yeah, you know, you know what I like one day. I go to the store to get something for free, and it's not free because I have to pay the tax on the free. Right. I love that one. That was a beauty. Theory has it the sales tax is a tax on the sale upon the business owner, but we pay the tax in the end anyway, so what's the difference? Gasoline tax is the same thing. It's a tax on the sale of gasoline, not on us as buyers or consumers, but we pay the tax anyway. Right. It's just legitimately passed on to us. You know, what they've got us in now is even worse because with the funny money, not only do you lose 50% of what you earn in the year, then you lose another 50% because they steal $3 trillion and hand it out to themselves. And then they claim they don't have enough money for anything. So then they increase your taxes even further and uh, claiming there's money trouble. So it's incredible. Well, and keeping the money, that $3 trillion that they took from us was in the form of a loan that we're paying the interest on still. Yeah, it's, it's a huge joke. Yeah. And in the meantime, they talk about cutting budget. They're not cutting anything. And the inflation... Is increase in the supply of currency or paper money, followed by an increase in prices and in wages. That's inflation defined from dictionaries I've seen back to 1700s. So they increase the money supply by 10% every year. That's why in 10 years your prices double, but your income doesn't double, or your your money you bring in for labor doesn't double. But they increase the money supply 10% every year. So that makes it even worse. Well, out of the mouth of uh, Ben Bernanke himself. Uh, he, he claims that, um, you know, they, they regulate uh, the, the money supply with an incredible invention. It's called the printing press. <laughs> i like to see someone regulate him. His day's coming. He's just a front man anyway. Chairman doesn't decide anything. It's the members of the Federal Reserve Board that make all the decisions, and they don't, no, nobody appoints them. President well, yeah, they need them. a public figure. They need somebody who's a, a willing scapegoat. I mean, yeah. the, you know, these these people don't really care. They're getting paid, and they they're uh, made to feel like they're untouchable anyway. So, you know, even when they are taken down a couple pegs or are used as a scapegoat, you know, they're they're basically getting away with rape and murder anyway. I just got I just got to wonder when we when you talk about Ezekiel thirty eight bill, and you talk about the and they're coming to pillage. I mean, there really isn't much left. Pillage in the U.S. anymore. Because they pillaged it all. It's like a dead carcass. They have pillaged it. They are pillaging it. They own most of it now. Well, that's what I'm wondering. What's left to pillage? I, I don't quite get it. There's like this vestige of a couple of things running, but it's mostly government. But, well, Ezekiel 38 may describe an actual military invasion. And it may, but it's not necessary because they've already been here. They've already been here for a hundred years in, in large numbers, and they've already been devouring our coasts and the wealth of our land and, and our white daughters for a hundred years. Well, the only thing I see uh, uh, making that feasible that it would be some kind of military invasion is, number one, well, it, it would, to me, it could only come from China. Number one, we already have, um, you know, at least uh, half a million uh, Chinese uh, troops on our soil uh, and have for some time. Um, Clinton opened up our, our borders to the Chinese. 
uh, Costco crates come across our our borders uh, at the rate of uh, 99 per hundred um, uh, crates are uninspected and passed right through. But China holds more of our our treasury bonds than than anyone else. And um, you know, if they're left holding the bag on trillions of dollars, the only way they're going to get anything back is to literally come and take it. And I think they've been preparing for it. I kind of predicted years ago that uh, the Chinese people will be the best friends America ever had. Not the government, but the people. And eventually they may say that they don't want this type of communist government, that they like the idea of prosperity that they've never had in the, in the history of China where the average person can really live pretty well. And faced with losing it, they'd rather get rid of their, their communist government and go to a uh, more of a representative government, and they may see us in our troubles and come over here and help us bail out our problems with the Jews and everybody else. You never know. They may be a little uh, like an ace up the sleeve, and we just don't know. Well, keep in mind, uh, Ron, that um, 66% of Chinese live in abject poverty, and these are all the people who live outside of city limits. They make an average of 260 some odd dollars a year, and they actually have to pay for permits to collect garbage within city gates for a living. Hmm. But what do what do a lot of those Chinese coolies with with little straw huts and rice patties? That's all they've ever known. If you have no no knowledge of anything else, you don't need it, right? Uh, I mean, the average the average hillbilly in the Appalachians. If you got into his mind, he don't think he's poor. He has his cabin. He has a couple of acres. He's left alone, and and he has what he needs to survive. Right, but that's that's here. That's not in China. These all these uh, peasants that live out in the country, you know, they they don't own anything. That's not their land. They work for the state, and they you know they it's pretty much just like uh, Bolshevik Russia. Um, you know, they're they're only left with the, the scraps just to be able to survive. Well, that would be an indication to me that the government couldn't get them to do much else, couldn't get them to, to um, fight a war for an oppressive tyranny. But, but it seems to me that they, they have um, no problems building large armies. Well, yeah, well, because these people are trying to get out of their poverty. That that's it's like it is here, where most of our our young men cannot find a, a decent job, so they're turning toward the military. That's exactly how how they've done it over in China. And, and the real problem over there is there aren't any enough young women to go around, right? Because of their their oppressive um their oppressive the birth techniques, yeah, birth birth practices, or their their birth regulations, or, or however you want to term it, but where they um that they basically encourage people to kill daughters. Oh yeah, well it's it's a uh, one daughter, uh, it's a one female birth rule that they have. It, it's forced abortions if you have more than one daughter. I thought it was a one child birth rule, and and because they all prefer sons, that they. They they do abort daughters. Yeah, the result is the same. Yeah, right. That's why uh, adopting children, white children in America, is almost impossible. Whereas you can go to China or you can go to India or anywhere in the world and adopt some child, and it's real easy. So I see white people here 
I was working with one guy. He says, we're going to adopt a child. Oh, good. He says, we're going to get one, a little girl from China. Right. And, and as far as I'm concerned, those people are absolute race traitors. You have oh. to be one selfish son of a bitch to take an Asian child and bring it into a white community and a white family and call it your own. It's like, well, what, do you, what do you have, a kid or a pet? Unfortunately... It depends on their their awareness. If they're not racially aware, you can't accuse them of that, because they yeah, I can to adopt. Yeah, yeah I can. can, but they will not. Yeah, they will can. not respond to that. You see, they'll sit there and say everything else. They have. They didn't understand the racial things. They just want to adopt. Right. And the laws well, in well America, they wouldn't like running into me, because the first thing I'm going to ask them is not. how they like their pet. How do you like your pet? What'd you pay for that? Well, maybe not. But why did you? Why did you prefer that over a dog? Well, I asked them about that, you know, and and they were insistent. I asked them two, three different times. I says, "Well, but see, the the laws of adopting children in America are almost prohibitive." I think I would ask them if um, you're going to have to address the laws of adoption in America so that they can adopt these thousands of thousands. Well, that's the problem, Ron. Is people don't accept what God gives them. They don't know what God gives them because they haven't been told. But, well, don't defend them that they're just scum. I'm not defending them. They're not scum. They are not told. They don't. Oh, yeah, they're scum. They don't open their Bibles and read their Bibles and understand what's going on in the world. They're scum. They don't read it. They haven't been told. They well, then they're scum. Thank you. Well, they're scum. scum I ain't going to defend them. Calling them scum will not get them to agree with you. They won't get them to understand they don't know, and that's the difference. They don't know. If they knew better, they would do better. If they knew how to get a white baby adopted easier, they would do it. But you're but talking like adoption's it. a necessity. Like adoption is is a, is a um a, a good option. You know, you know when adoption is a necessity, Ron. Adoption's a necessity. What when the white family down the street, the children lose both parents, then white people should be seeking to adopt those children. That's when adoption is a necessity. Adoption is not a necessity because somebody wants children and they can't have them themselves. That's not a necessity. Don't You're looking for, for a status symbol. You're looking for a pet. You're not looking for a child. You're not looking to help your race. You're not looking to help anybody. Now, I didn't understand the first part where you went back and you said the only reason for adoption is because of... Uh, if there's a white family on your street and... and um. That they and you know them and and or or they're in your family that they're cousins or or a, a niece or a nephew and and some hor horrible tragedy happens and and the children are left without parents then adoption is a necessity to look out for those children and and to make sure that they have everything that's provided for them that's the only time adoption is a necessity adoption is is not something that people should do because they feel like children. And, and they can't have them themselves. Well, that's not a reason why you should. And, and that's certainly not a reason to go get some pet from, from some foreign and alien tribe and bring it into your, your, your own tribe. That's destructive. I could, understand that. I could never I understand, understand that all my life. I don't understand how you can say that if, if white people somehow physically they're unable to have children, that they ought not to go out and adopt other orphaned white children. That doesn't make any sense. Should they let these children sit in this squalor, this this a uh, 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 home until they get old enough to go out and they have no parents at all? You, you just well, missed the whole point of what I said, Ron. That 
You're um, talking race. You know, I'm talking if, about white people. You know, I see it. You just missed the whole point of what I said. It's a matter of. I got it. What you said. You know, you're not supposed to adopt a white baby because you know you just want to adopt. Now, if if we had the if the system had the the wherewithal for us to do something like that if a, a white couple li- absolutely cannot give birth and yeah they make the concerted effort to adopt a white baby but the adoption process now is just like a pet store and and be long before i can you know became what i consider racially aware um I, it never made sense to me for anybody to adopt outside their race. It didn't make sense to me when I wasn't racially aware. It didn't make sense when I was a, a universalist Catholic. It just it went against my grain then. See, you, you adopt, Ron, you, you, legitimate adoption is to solve a problem for the child. It's not to solve a problem for the parents. Parent, they're not parents if they don't have children. Oh, we need to be parents. There's white children that are out there that have no parents. What do you do with them? Uh, that's a problem for the child, so you you adopt to solve no, a problem for the child. It's our problem. Well, well, well you're just missing what the hell I'm saying, Ron. You're just being thick-headed and you're missing what I'm saying. If there's children without parents, Ron, that's the, pro- the child has a problem and needs to be adopted. You see what I mean? But, no, you're looking at parents without children and trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist because they need a pet. I don't think I don't think you got that wrong. But no, you got it backwards. Your thinking is Jewish. I'm telling you. you your thinking no. is backwards. What if I Pe- people to do? People without children don't need children. Children without parents need parents, right? People without children don't need children to survive, do they? Uh, Monica, let me let me say something here now. If uh, what would Abraham do? What what did he do? He uh, because he didn't really go out. Uh, he he didn't go out and adopt anybody. His wife gave him uh, uh what was it her uh the Hagar her yeah the Hagar which is a mistake. He should have said no. You're the one that's going to do it, not give somebody else to me. But, yeah, it was Hagar. And that created a whole other race of people that could claim Abraham as their ancestor and cause us some troubles. But, yeah, it was Hagar. Uh, that wasn't well, well, right. Well, now we've got a whole bunch of Chinese kids that could make the same claim because parents needed pets. But what I'm trying to say, Ron, I want you to just think about this from the basic, most basic primitive point. Adults, two adults, a male and a female that live together, whether they're married or not, don't matter. But whether they're married legally, according to the state, don't matter. Two adults that live together don't need to adopt a child in order to survive or meet their basic living needs or have lives. Do they? No, they don't. A childless parent needs a parent and needs to be adopted. But you are creating, you are viewing the solution as a problem. The solution is not a problem. People don't need to adopt foreign alien babies from overseas under any circumstances. There's no justifying it except that they need to be gratified. But they're doing this so that they could be gratified. Well, that's the same reason why you go get a pet. It's not a problem that they're solving. They need gratification. And that's destructive. That's a destructive form of gratification. I I would never, ever call that a problem. They don't have a problem. 
two grown adults don't need a child. Now, when you look at it from the point that a, home, a parentless child needs an adult to support him, well, that's a different story. But right. problem A is not that, a problem. It's hard for us to be able to adopt these white children who need us. Adoption should be for children that need parents, not for parents that need children. Adults don't need children. They should, grown men and women should have a, a desire to reproduce, yes. But if you can't reproduce, you don't need a child. I'm sorry, you don't. And if you go get a child from a foreign land because you think you need one, you really only need to gratify yourself and your own ego. And, well, well I ain't got a good word for you. Well, Under any circumstances. If you get to adopt some white child. Why would they adopt a white child? It, it's the reason. It, it has to be for the child, Ron. You don't, oh, oh! I could give your kid a better, um, a, a better, a better life than you can. So let me take him. No, that ain't no reason to give up a child. Kind of like mental and emotional masturbation. Exactly, self gratification, Ron. But it's not a problem. Parents without children are not a problem because they're not parents. But let me let me say something here. I have an aunt and uncle who adopted a Korean girl. You know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, now she she turned out to be very nice and everything, but uh, they I'm sure they did it because they felt that they failed with their natural daughter who turned out to be a lesbian. Yeah, right. So they needed to gratify themselves, right? Uh, yeah, they also adopted uh, another girl who was white. Which yeah, yeah, but that don't matter. They did it to gratify themselves. That's the only reason why they did it. That was our ultimate intention, was our own gratification. But when white children need parents, then we have a problem, and, and then adoption should be encouraged, adoption by white parents for those children. But we shouldn't encourage adoption because parents need children, because that, it, it, it's, all, it's only people seeking to gratify themselves. And, and what they do is they end up doing what? Bringing in little Chinese kids and raising them as white. That's evil. If these parents that don't have any children or can't... And well, well, they're not parents if they don't well, have children. You just shut up and let me finish. <laughs> this is one of your hard parts is you just don't shut up long enough to let people talk. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't call them parents if they don't have children. Now you could go. If these people that cannot have children want to offer an orphaned white child, a place in a white home, in a white community, so they can have... But, well, there you have a situation where the child needs parents, Ron. That's fine. That's fine, Ron. That's fine. No, just shut up. I don't see what you could add to that. I'm agreeing with you, Ron. That's fine. You have a situation where the child needs parents. Next subject. I, I want to hear the rest of it. I don't think I'll get it out. Reading a book about the epic story of the Waffen SS. <laughs> You're interrupting my read. How many kids did they adopt? There must I have been a, home, a lot of homeless kids in the Ukraine, Ron. I think so. I think it's our Christian duty to go out there and find out if they oh. can adopt these children into homes. Oh, it's our Christian duty when we see children that need parents to take them. But it's not our Christian duty to, to, to require children. But when we're adults and we don't have children, oh, I need a kid. 
I don't. Oh, I can't find a white kid. Let me go get an Asian kid. That's self gratification, Ron. This whole thing started out by my talking about some guy that I used to work with who has a wife, and I don't know why, but they wanted to adopt a Chinese girl, and I said. Why don't you adopt a white child? There's so many of them here. And the bottom line was that they had a hard time because it was so difficult to get through it, whereas Chinese, you just ask and they give it to them. And I said, well, I'd rather you adopt the white child, but I didn't mention it anymore because, you know, after four or five times, the guy's made up his mind. And I don't know how it got around to the idea that uh, it got so complex as it has that I just because they they, the they sought to adopt a child to gratify themselves. That was the bottom line. They didn't want to help a child in need. They wanted to, to gratify their own desires. I'm not talking about them. My whole point is talking about there are so many white children in orphanages that they ought to be adopted by white people so that they can remain in the white race and have a decent family. Not bringing in a white family and a white community and stuff like that. I don't give a shit about the goddamn Chinese. But then why did you that mention them? my point. My point is, if we're going to do our Christian duty and take care of our own racial kind, we're going to have to look at these adoption agencies and adoption laws and change them so we can get these children out of the orphanages and into homes. Well, why are you talking about it? Why just, why just you don't start to, just start doing it? Well, it's a bit late for me. So, so what are you trying to say? I, I thought you were just trying to start a movement or something. Ball <laughs> movement. Oh. People that insist that they need children so that they, that they can gratify themselves are just being selfish. That's all it is. That's They're true. not doing any, looking to do anything for any child. They're just looking to do something for themselves. But if they want to adopt because they want to remove some waif out of an orphanage and give them a good home, is that, is that selfish? Is that buying a pet? No, that would be adopting for the right reason, Ron. But that's, well, that's, that's not the way you approached it. That's what I'm trying to promote, is to get these children out of these orphanages into white homes. But, well, where are they? Do you have any specific children in mind? Jeez, there's all kinds of orphanages out there with white children in it. That's one of the complaints that people have when they go around to adopt. They want to adopt a white child, but they can't because it's overwhelmingly burdensome. And take so, so are you trying to start a movement or something? No, no. We're well, well, then why are you pushing the issue? I, I don't understand. But if you're not, I mean, you got a website, just go start listing white children that need to be adopted on your website. <laughs> Action, not words. It's too, we got on the subject in the, about, about adopting foreigners, and I happen to know of a guy that did that. To me, it's absolutely repulsive, it's disgusting, and I would tell the people right off, I, I mean, how, how, why didn't you get a dog? Well, when you work with people, you don't talk the way you do. I would just ask him, why didn't you, why wouldn't I you get a dog? And I was polite about it. I wouldn't ask him a dog. I would just ask him politely why I did. I says, wouldn't you rather adopt a white child? Well, they told me why. They can't. It's impossible. I mean, by the time they get done with everything, it's, it's too difficult. So that's, that was their answer. Five, four or five times? Okay, that's the way it is. But I tried. Oh, maybe you asked the wrong question. Well, you're just operating a pet. What kind of dog do you want instead? That's not going to help me in the workplace. I mean, you got to think before we start shooting our mouths off at these people who are racially... Well, I, think, I, I think that you just approached it totally wrong. I would have approached it differently. Well, but you... I didn't say I was going to approach it without thinking. Are, are you trying to accuse me of not thinking? Well, if you go up and say, well, why don't you just adopt a dog... 
That's insulting to them. And boy, I tell you, that comes back. You got to be, we have to use a certain amount of, of smarts when we're talking to people that are doing things that are contrary to good racial practices. If it's insulting you know? to them, that's just tough. Well, that's not tough when you work with them, pal. That's just tough. I mean, okay, well, maybe that's why I don't work with anybody. Well, maybe not, but when you do, you'll find out eventually. They I mean, I'm not going to talk to them at all unless I tell them the truth. Well, you can tell them the truth without tell, insulting their dignity. You sit there and insult somebody enough, and they will defend themselves. Not because okay. they're wrong, but because they, they can try. <laughs> you gotta, you, right, you gotta well, use a certain amount of smarts when you talk with people that are screwed. They could try. That's okay. If you want to get them out of it, you could have to convince them, not to insult them out of it. My question would be not, you know, why are you adopting a Chinese or, or you know, some other freaking creature but uh, you know why are you adopting is it is it because you know there's white children in need or is it because you're in need oh well right that goes back to my original argument that people adopt yeah. for self-gratification they don't care about helping the kids they care about helping themselves some do yeah well, and that's what this, this adoption system has been set up to be. It's like I, I said earlier. It's like it's like a, a pet store for uh, for humans. You know, they they've made this. The Jews have made our adoption system into a, a petco for crying out loud. It's ridiculous. And uh, you know, our our white children who are the the reason why the adoption agency was set up. I mean, it's. Uh, not to really get off the the subject, but it's it's the same premise with uh, Milton Hershey here in Pennsylvania. He had he uh, invested his millions, his fortune uh, for uh, orphan white children. There, yep. he has an entire school. The Milton Hershey School was set up for orphan white children. Do you know what kids are in this school now? It's like eighty five percent black. I remember when that judge's the judge some judge in Pennsylvania just made a ruling that there aren't enough white kids applying for this school, so so you have to take black ones. And it was the board somehow a bunch of Jews got themselves wriggled themselves onto the board of trustees of, of that foundation, and they went to court. Those Jews went to court and got the rest of the board. And, and forced them to accept black children, even though it was absolutely contrary to Milton Hershey's will. Yeah, they've been doing that. They've been working hard on that board of trustees for quite a few years, Bill. Yeah, I know. I remember reading a story about that in the Wall Street Journal about maybe six, seven years ago. Well, you I know, guess how his uh, trust was arranged. If he if he had it written out to only white people, then that's like a covenant. And they well, right, and that's what he did, and the court found a, found a way to get around that. You know, I got a few comments about adoption. I've been listening off in the background while trying to fix a faucet. But from my experience, and I've known probably about six different people that were adopted, all the parents were bleeding heart liberals, and it was that pet mentality. And uh, for the most part, all the kids are really screwed in the head. They had no sense of identity. Uh, some of them knew who their parents biologically were, but some of them did not because let – me, let me back up a minute. You said this adoption system – well, first of all, the government shouldn't have any type of outlet for an adoption system. shouldn't be an option for a mother to give her child up to the government. It should be something that's placed completely on her sole responsibility. And the community should take care of that and the family should take care of that. So there shouldn't be anything like that at all open to them. 
maybe the you know the, the you know like I said the, the community and the family and that's it. Well, at one time, Mike, that's what churches were for. Exactly, exactly. And I was going to say churches, but that's why it kind of resulted to communities because churches are, you know, basically a, a middleman between us and Yahweh anyway. But uh, well, they tried to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this this whole idea of of wanting to adopt somebody. I mean, let's be honest. The mentality here is is that it's difficult enough for us to have our own children. For the case of people that can't have children, because I have seen people. Um, that have adopted when they already could have their own children. But in that kind of case, uh, you know, it's already difficult enough to have your own, so it is a mentality of giving a pet. I'll tell you, one case out of the six that I've known was uh, was this couple that lived in a, an apartment complex when I was younger, and they already had uh, two of their own, and they had uh, adopted a 15- and 16-year-old who came from a, uh, basically a pedophile family. Well, it turns out this guy that adopted him, he was also a pedophile, so they went through the same crap. Not to mention, jump, you know, jumping through hoops in a state. And these are two white children. But, um, yeah, every, every case I've ever met, it's just, it, the whole idea of adoption is just, it's just a joke. It really is. You know, nobody wants to take care of somebody else's, you know, kids. And quite frankly, having that adoption, so-called agency in the system, helps push people to have that availability to go, well, I don't really have enough money. My car's not new enough. I'm just going to give my kid up. Well, there shouldn't, there shouldn't be any of that anyway. So, I mean, it, it's it's like the marriage license thing. The, the, the government shouldn't be involved in a, in a religious institution between a man and a woman. You know, that in other words, they shouldn't be in, in giving rights out to faggots to call themselves being married and, you know, having tax breaks and all this stuff. You know, me and my wife, we don't have a marriage license. So... Well, that's that, just my two cents. And that's why the state is involved. That's why the state issues these certificates, because then the children become wards of the state because they are thusly products of the state. Well, mine aren't. That's what they assume with a marriage license is that the, uh, the state is the third partner in this marriage. They don't wash the dishes or take up the laundry or anything like that, but whenever something exactly. happens... They come in there and say, well, we're the third part, and we have an interest in this child because it's like a, we have incorporated ourselves, and any kind of subsidiary corporation is subject to the state because the corporation itself is a creation of the state and therefore subject to the legislature. So when we ever get a marriage license, we're agreeing that we have permission granted from the state to get together in marriage when it really should be called matrimony or holy matrimony. And they dominate the marriage and all the issue from it because of that license agreeing to it. Hey, well, exactly. exactly. Right. That's that's what that's why we didn't agree to do it, you know. And it's, you know, we we've basically luckily we're had learned a lot of this stuff early on, you know, me and my wife got together, and before we didn't have the first kid, you know, no, no social security cards, no marriage license, no vaccine, no circumcision on the boys, homeschooled, organic diets, you're teaching them about the kikes, you know, as you name it. Uh, we've, we've tried to be forthright in everything that uh, we, I'm just glad we learned. Some I know some people that have had kids and they didn't learn about the vaccine thing halfway through having their kids or, you know, the circumcision or whatever, so... Yeah, we've been blessed. Yeah, I'll say, Mike. Well, that was a showstopper. <laughs> I got. It was. I got an Sorry. aunt and uncle. <laughs> I have an aunt and uncle living in uh, Salt Lake City, and they they weren't able to have kids, and uh, they ended up adopting this uh, brown Brazilian squat, and then they they had uh, two, three daughters. 
two daughters and then two sons. And they glorify this little brown Brazilian squat who's grown up. They had their own daughters and sons after they adopted the um, the squat monster? Yeah. Yeah, and, and they glorify this Brazilian squat named Robin who drives around in a fancy BMW and has a fancy job. And the two boys are all messed up in their head and all whacked out with listening to weird rock music. And, I mean, they're in their mid to late 20s. And the one daughter had, well, she married a, a real decent white man. and They had four kids. The one daughter had a white boyfriend, had a white baby, and gave the little white baby up for adoption. Well, I can't see it ever having a positive effect on a family when you bring aliens into it. It just can't. It messes up. It, it, it's just uh, It's a curse. Absolutely. Literally. I know it sounds harsh, but that's just... I, I don't think it's harsh at all. The truth is, the truth is, is harsher. Yes, it is. That's what we we have to, you know, our mindset's all wrong. We, you know, I could understand problems in a workplace, and, and I've been through those problems, believe me. But um, we have to tell people the truth. We can't refrain from from um, and, and soft soak everything. This is a war we're fighting. This is a spiritual war. We're told it's a war. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 describes it as a war. He describes it like that in several places in his epistles. This isn't a joke. It's for keeps. When your brother's screwing up, you better tell him about it and not soft-soak it. Oh, yes. LJ, um, Paul actually said that if you get yourself circumcised, you're obliged to do the whole law. means follow all the rituals and fight them. If you're going to start doing the rituals, if you're going to think that rituals can save you, you better do them all and, and, and follow them all. Yeah, Cammy asked what was wrong with circumcision. Um, circumcision, there is nothing uh, medically beneficial about it. Uh, the medical field tries to claim that uh, uh, it, it it uh, inhibits infections down there and, and things of that nature, and there's there is no fact that backs that up. Medical field is a bunch of it Jews simply, that have tricked us into it. It was a mark <laughs> of the Israelites of the Abrahamic covenant. Right. I, I got the medical. Yeah, you know, to me, the medical industry is a bunch of Jews that have gotten into our our medical industry that have 50 years later tricked us into the fact that we have to circumcise all of our children in in order to um, Judaize us so that Jews can hide among us because Jews wouldn't be able to hide among us if none of us were circumcised and Cammy, I've had five sons and like an idiot I believed the lies and I got them all circumcised seems such a strange way to express a particular racial or religious idea that you have the end of your penis cuts off. When would anybody ever be looking at that? Well, that was, a, that was one of the, because they didn't have ID cards and shit like that back in the day, Ron. That, that was the best way to identify uh, a, a true Israelite because there were still plenty of white nations back then. That was the way to identify an Israelite. Well, how would they identify themselves? What process would they go through? They whip out there and, and say, "Here I." But well, when a Jew goes into a uh, into a white area and seduces a white school or whatever, and seduces a white woman, and and he and and he gets her into bed, and she sees that he's circumcised, she doesn't necessarily know anymore that he's a Jew. 
Where, where a hundred years ago she would have said, "Oh, you're a Jew. What the hell? What am I doing?" Maybe. Well, that maybe that's a that's a very limited application. But in the general principles of society, where everybody's wearing clothes, how would you know what is? I, you think I, people I, are re- wearing clothes in our universities today? <laughs> Not often. Well, they are. Well, well that doesn't doesn't Yahweh condemn mutilation of the body? Well, circumcision was a a, um, a ritual of the Old Testament that was commanded by the law, and and it was as a sign between the children of Israel and and Yahweh, and it 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 basically um, does symbolize a putting away of the flesh. But under the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we have no rituals. We have no necessary rituals. And that's what it basically was. Was it, it was a ritual, a symbol of the flesh. We have no symbols of the flesh in the new covenant. And keep in mind too, while it was a, a while it is a form of mutilation, it is extra flesh that could be removed. And when it was when it was stated specifically as per the law that it was to be done eight days after the the infant was born, there is that, and it is a a scientific fact that within that, in that eighth day, it's like an eight to ten day period where the, uh, I I believe, I I think it's a a matter of the um, uh, thickness of the blood in an infant at that time or a healing process in which that is the the best time to have that done where there is very little blood letting to be done and the healing can uh, take place almost uh, not necessarily instantly but start instantly. Okay. But even today we can't say everyone who's circumcised is Jewish because I know people who is not Jewish and they do uh, get circumcised. That was the point that we've been trying to make. Yeah, what better way for them to be able to uh, uh, not, you know, be a lot tougher to differentiate them from us when, you know, if white people are still practicing the the art of circumcision. But, well, right, and that's what they've done. When, when I was a young father, and, and I remember having my first son, my first child was a girl, my next five were boys. And every time but we had a child, the doctor would come in and say, oh, you got to circumcise him, this and that, and the other thing and the other thing. And I didn't care one way or the, or the other. It didn't really mean anything to me. And, and um, being young and stupid, that's the way you are. And, and my wife, you know, we always just agreed to it. Yeah, sure, okay, get him circumcised. But but um, that's the same thing when we were born, right? When, when my generation was born. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, I mean, my son is going to be six soon, and you know, I, I considered myself a believer in in the Bible for quite a long time. But the the idea of circumcision, I mean, to me, you know, still being raised catholic and and the understanding that uh, circumcision was still part of our culture and our belief and then throw in the fact that i was taught that uh, the medical field says it's essentially necessary to uh to to do this oh yeah they'll tell you that it prevents certain types of cancer and this and that 
all I know is if I was able to have any more kids, you know, from here on out, you're damn right they wouldn't get circumcised. They wouldn't get vaccinated and, and all that other. Right. And if I had to do it over again, none of my sons would be circumcised. I heard in a very strict uh, Muslim uh, religion that they actually circumcise women, cut their clitoris off. Yes, they do. Be repulsive. Yeah. There are some African tribes. In fact, one woman came into America trying to claim that uh, 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 not refugee, uh, um, uh, there was a status when they're persecuted uh, because they would uh, they would uh, do just that. They take a, some of the older women would take a stick and just gouge out the little girls' uh, uh, the clitorises, and that was just their social habit. And they, uh, we did it, and they did it to me, so I have to do it to you, and my daughter's going to do it to her daughter, and blah, blah. And uh, there's a great effort by the U.N., most incompetent outfit ever, to get that to stop, just because there's no purpose for it. It's just somebody started it, and it's, it's doing something because it was done to them. It's almost like child abuse, you know. That was asylum. Asylum, yeah. And I don't know if they granted asylum on that basis or not. Maybe she had to come up with something else. But they made the newspapers for a while. And they're bringing these people in from Rwanda and uh, Ethiopia and everywhere else where they do that. And they're bringing those into, into America, even into where I'm living here. See more and more of these, these strange-looking people. You can tell they're Africans, not Negroes from America. They're Africans. There's something about them. And they'll bring with them all their old traits. Like the Muslims come in here, you know, all of a sudden the daughter is gone. He's oh, she went back to the Iraq or something like that, or to Saudi Arabia. Well, maybe she didn't, not so. Maybe she didn't want to marry some guy that was, you know, ten times older than she was. And uh, and so the father has the honor of, of killing and gets rid of the daughter, and they say that she went back. All these things coming in here, disturbing everything. I used to dig out one Corinthians 7.18 for LJ. He's in one of those modern humbug translations. Yeah, I don't think Junie was uh, uh, actually posting any questions on it, Bill. She was actually quoting 1 Corinthians 7.18. Yeah, well, that that a lot of the uh, modern translators think that this word that means to be persuaded or induced or, or um, prodded into something means to be uncertain, to, to, um, to, to reverse your circumcision, and that's not what it means at all, right? Right. Can't reverse your circumcision. Once it's gone, it's gone. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. That's not what the text is saying. Being circumcised, has anyone been called? One must not be induced. You must not be induced to be circumcised, in other words. Right. Circumcision profits nothing, and uncircumcision profits nothing. Right. But, well, right. I mean, it doesn't matter if you circumcise yourself or not, but if you go get yourself circumcised thinking that that's going to establish a relationship with God, you better think again, because nothing that a man does can establish his relationship with God. God has a relationship with the children of Israel. The, the covenants and, and the promises are for them, period. That's the story of the gospel. And that's why Paul said that if you're going to go ahead and get yourself circumcised, uh, with that intent, well, then you're denying you the sacrifice of Christ, go right? Ahead and do all the rituals, then. But well, right, because you've denied the, the sacrifice of Christ. Who's the last ritual? And if you deny the sacrifice of Christ, you better follow the whole law. From our forefathers, uh, sister, our forefathers, twelve brothers, their sister Dana was uh, Dinah. Dinah. 
Dinah was sexually assaulted by those that one group. They went in and said, oh, you have to all get circumcised. And men of shake him. Yeah. And then they all went in and slaughtered them all. They circumcised them all, right? Simeon and Levi did that. Not all the Israelites. Simeon and Levi went out on their own and did that. And Jacob got really mad about that. He was really angry about that. Uh, apparently, this one uh, raghead got the hots for Dinah, and, and she was out there were all by herself, which she probably shouldn't have been. She should have been taking some of her brothers or someone with her, but somehow or another, she was in a position where this raghead could push her, himself upon her and then rapes her, and then he just tells his dad, and his probably dad probably said, look, we better go over there and, and, and pretend you love her and you marry her, otherwise you're going to cut us up. And, and so they do, but uh, Jacob didn't allow that. But Simeon and Levi went off on their own and says, hey, you can, you can have Dinah, but you have to get circumcised like we are first. And that's when they, when they were in their extremity of having it cut off. And then they came in and attacked them and killed them all off because they, they couldn't get up. It turned too much even to move around. And that's what then uh, Jacob said, we got to get out of here, you know. And so they moved to an entirely different place in the, in the neighborhood, sort of. And everywhere they went, they were, people were terrified of these people, partly because of what uh, Simeon and Levi did. But in the blessing scene later on at the end of Genesis, they were, they were uh, uh, along with Reuben, they were denied the scepter right to become the patriarch of all Israel because of that act. So it wasn't right. a good thing to do, but they did it. Well, it's weird. I could never understand why. I mean, it's the judgment of God, right? But um, Witches. They were skipped over for the scepter, but Levi, Simeon was skipped over for everything. And, and Levi still ended up in the priesthood, right? But, but Simeon was skipped over for everything. Yeah, maybe he was the initiator and Levi just kind of went along with it. I don't know. There's so much missing in there, but we have to... I... Well, that being a fulfillment of the law there, Ron, is, is uh, uh, when, if, if a woman shall lay with a beast. But she was, as we read it, she was forced upon, not that she went out and enticed him. Right. Well, my point is, is that beast is to be killed. Perhaps that beast, but not all the beasts that are related to him. That was, right. I think, their mistake. They, I think they could have claimed the, 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 uh, the I guess it would be the cult at that point, the Shemite law, that they could kill off this guy, Shechem, I think his name was, but not the whole family, not using, not using some commandment of God to trick them into being dis- uh, uh, incapacitated so they can go in and more easily kill the whole bunch. I think that was right. the, the sin. Should have hit him. Oh, I Shechem. agree. They went overboard, that's for sure. Yeah. Although something had to have been done. I mean, I look at it as, I mean, if if my recollection is correct, I, I, I guess uh, Dinah was, was not but 15 years old or something at the time. And, and, you know, I mean, seriously, she was probably just a, a being a rebellious teenager and she got she got literally caught with her pants down you know thinking that you know because she's been so sheltered and and raised so well that everyone else was like that and she went to go out and experience the world by herself and uh, she paid the price yeah that's good explanation you know but i can't i don't begrudge her brothers for uh being pissed off you know, they they definitely should have thought it through, and that's why it's you know there's so many places in scripture that that say you know you know you don't let your anger get the best of you. 
Yeah. And they lost their rights because of that. Patriarchal rights. Yep. Well, I'm glad this recording cuts out white space. (laughs) (laughs) So a silence could not be construed as a rejection of someone's opinion. (laughs) How long does it take white space before it cuts off and then begins again? I don't know, but sometimes a three-hour recording here is really only two and a half. <laughs> yeah, I'll 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 be surprised at how short it is when when I go to um, post it. Right. A lot of times there's just time to contemplate something or to think up something. Well, it's been a I mean it's been pretty good two-hour solid discussion we got going on here. You can't beat that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not over yet. I hope. I think. I don't know. <laughs> But it's almost 11 o'clock your time now. Yeah. I have a Euro Forum on Thursday afternoon and um, at 1 p.m. Eastern. And my second um, my second program on TalkShoe at 8 p.m. Friday. I want to thank everybody that showed up at the last one. Cammy just asked, uh, what about Passover? Do you guys get together to celebrate? Um, Cammy, know, um... still keep the feast, Cammy. We, sh- we should. I, I thought I... I, I um, suggested that in the Facebook. Cammy, there's a lot of Christian identity groups. Um, I can't say I, I agree with everything that all of them teaches. You know, some of them are like Pete Peters and Ted Whelan and people like that, that that do keep the Passover, and we should. It's just that you'll find that the people here, some of the people here have, are, are, are you know, have local people also that they, they, um, they worship with or, or fellowship with. But most of the people here are spread out over the country, and most of us are alone. I mean, the closest identist that, that I know is probably Matt, who's three hours away. Or, well, um, Greg Howard, I guess. He's about three hours away, too. Yeah, I mean, as long as you have a place to go, and, and you can fellowship, and you can uh, observe the, the feasts, that's fine. You know, I, I wish I had some place like that to go to. But, uh, you know, it's just, just the knowledge and being able to uh, observe the feasts as it is and for what they are, you know, I, I think Yahweh will, will bring fellowship together if, if and when it, it uh, necessitates. Oh, wow, you, will, you, you travel 800 miles to do that. Wow. Buddy Johnson, no thanks. What state are you in, Cammie, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, there's people in this group in Alabama, and, and in Georgia, and in Louisiana. I never met anybody here in Mississippi, though. I don't know what's up with Mississippi. We'll meet people here from Alabama, though, Tammy. There's actually a couple. Yeah, but aren't there any white people in Mississippi? I mean, wasn't Haley Barber the governor? That's a great idea, Cammy. I'm still trying to get some more of them to come here, Cammy. LD was here. He, he's been here a lot, but... um. I guess it's hard to get people to download software and install it. They don't want to mess with it. I don't know. Yeah, we should keep a Sabbath, Cammy. You you should celebrate a Sabbath. I mean, my yeah, you know, I I I don't do anything on a Sabbath. I'm I'm here all the time, right? Well, when I can be, but the, my I don't um, work for hire. I, I don't shop or or trade or things like that. That that's um. Uh, that's the only asking about a specific day too, Bill. Oh, it doesn't matter, Cammy. I, I mean, Saturday is my Sabbath, and, and that's my preferred day. But I'm, I mean, I don't think that um, somebody that that celebrates a Sunday Sabbath is a sinner. 
we we don't even really know if Saturday is the real seventh day or if Sunday is the real seventh day. We don't even know if the seventh day was the seventh day every year. Well, we don't know if they didn't restart the. Um, a, a lot of people, a lot of people believe that the calendar for the year started or began on the first day of the year, and 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 there's no, I I can't refute that with scripture. I, I mean, it's, I I don't think so. There's a lot of different calendars, and I don't get involved in calendrical ex, ex, disputes at all because um, no calendar can be proven to to be a hundred percent right. Well, and and what is it that uh, that Paul had said also, you know? But no man uh, judge you concerning feast yeah, or Sabbath or new moons for for uh, observance of a, a feast day or a Sabbath that does not uh, uh, coincide with what when you observe it. Exactly. If, if I'm in your house, Cammy, and and you have a Sunday Sabbath, I'm not going to yell at you and say you should have a Saturday Sabbath. I'm just going to have a Sunday Sabbath because I'm in your house. And if I'm in if I'm in Matt's house and he has a Saturday Sabbath, I'm just going to celebrate the Saturday Sabbath. If I think that the Passover should start on March 29th and I go to Matt's house and he wants to have the Passover feast on the 31st, I'm not going to yell out. I'm just going to say, "All right, Matt, we'll have it on the 31st. It ain't no problem." <laughs> there, are, there are others out there in the. Uh, uh, Christian identity, they're taking up that idea of those holidays and the Old Testament uh, feast days and things that they will get very hostile towards people that don't do exactly what they say they should do. They've got this all figured out, according to them, and they get really tough. Right. They kind of show their unchristian abilities when they start doing that. Well, right. You know, they're getting tough over something that can't be proven one way or another, and, and that's ridiculous. That's absolutely unchristian. One thing that's interesting well, about the seventh day of rest, it says rest. It didn't say go up and go down to the local Judeo-Christian church. It said rest. In those days, physical labor was the, the norm. People laying around in offices was not uh, too much popular in those days. Well, well today now, they go to church for one hour, they think they're holy, and then they go watch niggers run a field, ball up and down the field for eight hours. <laughs> right. It's to right. drink beer, which is totally unchristian. What, drinking beer or watching niggers chase a ball and drinking beer? Well, combining them, right? Um, I mean, the occasional beer is okay, but but um, <laughs> yeah, to sit there and drink beer and and to to yell at niggers running a ball up up and down the field that's that's evil. That that's I that's idolatry. That's what that is. It's double punishment for being on the Sabbath, right? <laughs> yeah, they go to Catholic church, they worship the idols, and then they go turn their TVs on and worship more idols. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's funny that they, everybody has to got to go to church on Sunday or even Saturday. You know, it doesn't say that. It just says rest. But well, the original, yeah, you know, if you if you observe the um, in the Book of Acts, yeah, yes, it does say rest. But the Sabbath was used as a day of gathering and to hear the law in the ancient in the ancient kingdom. And because there were um, there were no books. You know, people didn't have books in, in, in ancient times. Books were very, very expensive. If you had books, that usually meant you were wealthy, right? So, so maybe there was one set of scriptures in the whole community. So, so the people used the Sabbath to gather to hear the scriptures. And, and some of the Greeks were making a party out of it, and, and Paul excoriated. Paul, Paul admonished them for that. He admonished them in, in 1 Corinthians for making a, a party and, a, and a, a, a pagan love feast out of the Sabbath, virtually. 
Right. They That's did. when he was telling everybody, you know, if you're if you know you think you need to eat and drink, do it before you get there. That, right. That's what your houses are for. But, well, right. So so that shows you right there that that the Sabbath wasn't about the um the mass ritual that the Catholics have, right? But mm -hmm. no, a, a lot of people they did gather to hear the scripture. And they they spent their Sabbath day. They were resting. I mean, don't get me wrong, but they were um, gathered to hear the scripture and, and to praise God. But where today we have books, we we can read the scripture. We we don't need to go to a church. You sure as hell aren't going to get the scripture out of one of these modern churches. You're not going to do it. Tammy, every meal is the Lord's supper. Every meal that you have, every meal that you share with your kin, that is a communion. That's why it's called communion. Yeah. Daily bread. You know, if you read my translation, it says, every time you partake of this bread and this wine, you, you should praise God and, and thank God. Not just once a week on Sunday afternoon. It reminds me of that uh, Norman Rockwell painting that is moderately famous, I guess, where these, uh, this old lady and her grandchildren are sitting at this restaurant table, and they got their hands folded, and they're bowing their heads in prayer, and he's kind of... Teenage juvenile delinquent type galoots are over there, kind of looking at him like, "Gee whiz," you know. <laughs> and they're praying over their food, and these other guys never probably never would have thought of doing it. Hey, Jill, this, says, right? uh, this is the second time he asked. He said, well, "What about the Council of Nicaea uh, and the, the changing of the Sabbath day?" Well, well, you know, they had no scriptural authority to change the Sabbath day. They changed a lot of things. Yeah, they did. I think that was kind of the. So they, uh, there were some people who were murdered because they didn't want to go along with that. I can't think of the names now. I remember reading about it, but there was a lot of trouble, a lot of intimidation, uh, uh, everything like that. It was really difficult, and the, the, the vicious people went out in the Council of Nicaea. That's where they decided what books are going to be in what they called the Bible and which ones are going to be out. Well, I think the Council of Nicaea was more of a, a like a, a power struggle in a way. It, well, right, yeah. but I always, I also think that they were they felt like they had to distinguish themselves from the Jews. Well, they could have done it in a better way, <laughs> but that's how it worked out. The strongest personalities, the most forceful, won out, and eventually they just uh, uh, worked out worked to to uh, uh, eliminate any competition by the various ways of uh, shunning and uh, gossiping and maligning. Well, that just goes to show that that uh, we, while Yahweh gives us the wherewithal to be able to govern ourselves and his perfect laws, uh, man will still, you know, white men, Israelites will still manage to twist them. And I don't even really think we have any assurance that what we perceive as Saturday is really the Sabbath day anyway. I used I I used to go by the the premise that the day actually starts at sundown because according to well, it should. Uh, the the creation uh, first there was darkness then there was light one day so when I when I was more uh, strict about following the Sabbath on the seventh day being Saturday in my book. Uh, my Sabbath started from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. Well, well it should. It, it should start. That That is scriptural that the day starts at sundown. It's absolutely scriptural. It's, it really starts after sundown is complete, what would be the, right. the next right. day. That's why we have, yeah, you know, our calendar is only three hours off in that respect. You understand that? Right. 
I mean, we start the day at midnight, which is um, only a couple hours late. That's all it is. Now, why do you think we have Christmas Eve the night before Christmas? And we have New Year's Eve the night before New Year's. Because that's when the day starts. <laughs> for, for technical reasons, we, we started at midnight instead of after sundown at 9 p.m. or at 8 p.m. or whenever. It, it would change all the time, right? If, if we had 24-hour mechanical clocks that recorded the, the um, beginning of the day according to the Bible... That then the day would the day would change all the time, so it's easier to just have it at midnight. <laughs> I think in the long run, it really doesn't matter. When they had the crucifixion, they talked about how, uh, and other times too, they talked about in the in the third hour, in the sixth hour, in the ninth hour, and I think they started their day at dawn, which would be essentially let's say six a.m. our time. Well, the and Greeks the, only had they didn't count hours at night. They had watches. They had the first watch, the second watch, the third watch, and the fourth watch at night. And then they started counting hours at sunup. Mm-hmm. First well, hour to second when, hour. When Yahshua was crucified, remember how it said that they had to get him down off the cross quickly because it was getting dark. And as soon as it gets dark, then it would be the Sabbath. So he had to be placed in the tomb before the Sabbath, before the sun had completely gone down and it had become night. Oh, right. That was according to the ancient Hebrew tradition. But remember that even um, at the time of Christ, there was confusion over the Passover and when it was. There was already calendar confusion. And, 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 and I think that Paul warned us not to let anybody judge us concerning the, the, um, the calendar because he knew that, that these um, disputes were inevitable. Because there was already confusion at the time of Christ. He clearly had his Passover two days before the, the Jews had a Passover. The apostles didn't say, are we going to celebrate the Passover early because you're going to die tomorrow? They said, that they said are we going to celebrate, where do you want us to, to, to celebrate the Passover? That's what they asked them. I said, where would you like us to celebrate the Passover? And he told him, go into this town and you'll meet this man and he'll bring you to this house and that's where we're going to have the Passover. And they had the Passover. And they were fully persuaded that they were eating the Passover meal. Well, they were, according to their calendar. The Jews in Jerusalem had a different calendar. And he was seized that night. It was already technically the next day. And that was called the preparation day. And he was crucified on the preparation day, the day after him and his disciples had the Passover. And then he was buried. He had to be in the ground before the Passover, but which was several hours after the, um, you know, after the crucifixion. He had to be in the ground before sundown. And that was the day the official, quote-unquote, the official Passover began in Jerusalem. So he gave up the ghost on Friday at sunset, and then he was resurrected. No, he would have been, that would have been three days prior. But then the resurrection was actually at the end, been on Saturday at, at sunset, right? It would have been, he was crucified, I think, on a, on a, on a Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wednesday evening. For the three days to work out, yeah, it's not a yeah, Right. Wednesday, sunset. resurrect on Sunday, because there's still not enough time for, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there was, it wasn't enough time. It would be Monday for the three full days. 
So yeah, Wednesday sunset to Thursday sunset, Thursday sunset to Friday sunset, and Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, which is the time of the resurrection when he was resurrected. Right, because he was already up and gone in the morning at the crack of dawn. Yeah, with Sunday, yeah. So when they go into their Judeo churches on, on Sunday, he, he's already gone. <laughs> he's already, Elvis <laughs> yeah. has already left the building. Yeah. <laughs> Clifton has a pretty good... Um, a pr- pretty good calculations of that week on his website of, of you know of the the days of that week and and when he was crucified and when he was resurrected and and it had to be three days and three nights right but I mean Friday to Sunday and I don't know how the Catholics get three three days and three nights out of that yeah it's impossible Pammy I'm not sure if the Companion Bible chart rectifies with Scripture but but I know that Clifton's um, Clifton's does. Three days and three nights. It's right on his website on the, um, here we go. There's the link right there. I wanted to, uh, Cammie had a, a question earlier, that something that we have most certainly discussed many times. Um, she says, I know our government's corrupt. Do you think we should work with what we have, for example, voting for Ron Paul in 2012, or do we just employ imprecatory prayer against the government and wait for the return of Jesus? That would be the course I take. Which one? Pray the imprecatory prayer and, and wait for the return of Christ, because the government, we have no political solution. I'm not going to preclude, I'm not going to say that people shouldn't vote at all. You can vote and make a difference in your community, in your little local community. You have a um, a responsibility to witness to your community and, and to try to do the right thing. And that would include becoming engaged in the process at your local community level. That is fine. But don't think that you're ever going to make a difference at the national and state level. You're not. It, it's 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 all corrupt. The money all belongs to Wall Street. We we will never outvote the Jews because we can't possibly outvote the people that print the money. It ain't happening, right, dissident? It's never going to happen. We're never going to win at a national level. Everybody at the national level that gets into office, if they're not corrupt before they get there, they'll be corrupted as soon as they get there. But you can witness to your community. Try to demonstrate to your community what the right thing is to do and, and become engaged at the local level. And, and some of us might even make a difference. And, and at least if we can't, um, you know, if justice don't prevail, at least we could try to wake a few people up. And, and that would be a noble endeavor and, and a Christian one. But as far as national politics is concerned and, and even state politics, get it. It's all Jewish Wall Street money, and, and you're not going to beat it. So, so um Recognize it as the beast that it is, and don't ever have any hope in it. Our only hope is in Christ. We have no political solution. Hey, speaking of, of hope, what about, uh, and, and you had mentioned about talking about res- Revelation. And, uh, it talks about the uh, the mark upon the, uh, upon the forehead. And that It also talks in Ezekiel about the same thing. To not touch, you know, the, the, uh, the, the green grass or the trees. So... Until those who have, you know, the the uh, have been sealed with the uh, the name of white upon their forehead. Yeah, well, well, it's all symbolic. But go on. I didn't really get into it because it's 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 just symbolism. It's 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 mentioned in Ezekiel twice, and then it's mentioned uh, in um, in Revelation like about five times. It talks about yeah. you know about the 
Uh, and I was just wondering if you had any, any insight into that or what you're... No, no, it's symbolic and spiritual, and we I, I don't think we can have real insight into it. I think that the mark of the beast is, means different things at different times, but, but it's something that um, we're never going to see, right, with our eyes. Because it talks about the mark of the beast, and now it talks about the, the mark of Yahweh. Well, well, right, but I believe that the mark of the beast is the, yeah, you know, the people that have that mark are the people that worship the system, and there's plenty of them out there. Yeah, and actually in Ezekiel it says, you know, those who sigh for the abominations. Right, absolutely. But it's not an actual physical mark that you could see. I planned on getting, I had planned on talking about it at length, I think in chapter 15, I think it is. I might be off. Yeah, actually that whole whole thing with, uh, with Ron Paul is, Ron Paul is a joke. Las Vegas, dude, I wouldn't get a DNA test. You, you, you should know who you are and, and who you're not. But within reasonable, um, I mean, none of us have a guarantee of purity, right? That's the way it is. That's part of our punishment, that we were to forget our identity and not have that guarantee of racial purity. That's part of our punishment. But you should know in your heart who you are and, and have a good idea of your family, and, and that would be good enough. The DNA laboratories are all run by the Jews, and the Jews have an agenda to convince us that we're all mixed. So it doesn't matter if we mix anymore. If you spend money at a DNA lab, you're throwing it away. That's where the genealogies came in in the, um, Nehemiah and uh, Ezra, where they found out that people come up, oh, we're Israelites, we're Israelites, but they said that they couldn't be found in the genealogies. Well, they're right. the Jews coming in there saying, oh, hey, we're, we're one of you. Uh, we're, well, right, we're exactly. Yeah, so unfortunately, a lot of our our genealogies are kept by the state and in, in birth certificates, and a lot of people don't even know where to go get those. And that's where the uh, the old people put their family trees, and uh, where they just wrote down names. They didn't put anything else; just wrote down names of who was where, who married who, and the children, stuff like that. That's sometimes the only one you have to, to link it back. But most people today, they have no idea who their grandparents are. There's so many divorces and stuff like that. They got four or six sets of grandparents. They don't know where they are. They just get lost in it. You know, not fun. Yeah, well, Las Vegas, too. We can't. We're told we can't worry about our children. We can't save our own children, right? If Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would only be able to save themselves for their righteousness. They couldn't even save their children. It's an Ezekiel, I believe. Well, it also says Joshua stated that he would he would turn uh, mother against daughter, son son against father, uh, mother-in-law against daughter. You know all that. That um, you know this this was not this is this was not. Uh, a you know a flower child love everybody type situation that uh, not this was not going to be for everybody. Oh Ezekiel chapter fourteen verse twenty. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says Yahweh, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, but they shall they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. Even the most righteous men among us can't help our kids. Look at we could point them in the right direction, but we we can't um we can't guarantee that they're um that they're not going to be suffer torment and and trial in this life, right? Right. Scripture elucidated how heartbroken uh, Ezekiel fourteen twenty Isaac was over Esau's race mixing. 
And Ezekiel 14, 14 also. Tammy, I, I don't know how you got into this, the way you described it to me in that um, Facebook. You're, you're, um, that's the way it works, right? We're all, we're all here against the odds in, in one way or another. That's yeah, part of the amazing part about it. That I found my way. And there's, there's a few married couples here, but they're, they're scarce. There's more people here that have a, a spouse that, that, um, that won't think like they do. And I think that the married couples that are here are, are really blessed. Yeah, I can't say that my marriage didn't go undergo one hell of a test when uh, when I, I came across the CI message. It most certainly did, but um, I think I'm one of the blessed few who was able to um, to be able to have my wife's eyes opened. I mean, I just I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and that was the best that I could do. And Yahweh saw fit to open Cheryl's eyes, and and I can't be happier. No, did you pray? Did you pray first and then present the uh, view, or did you present it and then pray? You see the difference? Uh, actually, it it's not that. That's actually kind of a tough one to answer, Ron, in that. Um, I had, uh, you know, I had, for as long as my wife and I had been married, you know, she she knew and understood my beliefs in the name of Yahweh and Yahshua and that, that uh, scripture was the foundation of all understanding and truth and, and uh, that I was completely non-denominational, non-denominational and completely against organized religion, but I did not have the complete grasp of the truth especially the the seed line message and when i came across it i mean it just it blew me away and uh you know i threw myself into it and uh, i really didn't even discuss it with my wife for a good two to three months until i was sure that you know what i was reading and understanding was the right thing because i was not going to "Quote unquote," go off the deep end on on something that I did not research fully, and the, the funny thing is, is that you know I've come to realize you can never research it fully because I'm constantly researching it. Uh, you know, the 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 gist of it was something that yeah, when I when I came to my wife about it and, and explained it to her, it was it was something tough for her to grasp. And yes, then I most certainly did uh, pray very hard on that. Tammy, how did you find this Anglo-Israel truth? I'm I'm curious now. You've got my curiosity peaked. You got to get Tammy to talk. <laughs> Worldwide Church of God, man. A lot of people have found Christian identity through the Worldwide Church of God. Believe it or not, there's a woman that comes here. She's on, she'll be on the Euro Forum, I'm sure, on um on on Thursday when I have it. She's an older woman and and she's a really wonderful woman. And she found Christian identity through the Worldwide Church of God even though she's British, but which is really, I think, weird. That's the, uh, her Armstrong, right? Yes, their halfway house. Yeah, who had a uh, line to Tel Aviv. Well, all of British Israel does. <laughs> it's called Yer Davidi. <laughs> yeah, with Menachem Bay. Oh, good night, Clifton. Frederick Haberman, yeah, he was about three-quarters of the way there, maybe, I don't know. I, I remember his book, I read his book. I'm glad you found us too. Yeah, we uh, we just keep growing. Our numbers keep growing. Although Yahweh seems fit to, uh, apparently we we reach a certain number and then he splits us up. 
And then he does it all over again. Yeah, we just had a major shrinking. Fortunately, it didn't um, shrink too much, or at least not have as much as some people hoped. Huh, I just came across something kind of interesting. Apparently, uh, Dave, I don't know exactly who, but quoted uh, in the forum about there's being some sort of UN resolution to give uh, Indians back some of their traditional lands. Well, well, that's been a worldwide movement, right? I mean, why wouldn't it come here? It happened in Canada. They gave the um, the Eskimos back that, that corner, that half of the Northwest ter- Territories, what do they call it? I, I, don't, I don't even remember. And and then it happened in New Zealand. So so why couldn't it happen here? Why wouldn't it happen here? That's our punishment for um, not cleansing the land, like we were told. Oh, that sounds a, mean. I have a statement slash question. Okay, do you think that he's uh, that Yahweh is opening more people's eyes because it's getting closer? Like he wants to get as much as us as possible to like go to the truth. Well, pretty soon everybody's eyes are going to be open. I just believe that at this time, that the people that are being called are are, are probably going to carry the message to the people that are going to need it, right? Right. Okay, that makes more sense. I don't. Uh, there's going to be a mass awakening. At, at the time of the end, is it? Are we that close to it? I don't like to say that we're that close to it. I would like us to be. We would all here like like it to be tomorrow, right? But but um no, I'm afraid that this beast might that they might breathe fire into this beast for another forty years. We don't know. No man knows today. I'll tell you when it's not going to be. It, it's not going to be December twenty first, twenty twelve. I could guarantee it. I didn't think so, but you know it was. Something that ran through my mind as we were talking about it because, uh, like, I just recently came to the truth and we're getting more people and it seems like... Right, and, and you know something, when, when people come to the truth, <laughs> they like to think that they came to the truth because this is right around the corner, but that ain't the way it is. <laughs> it wasn't like that for me at all. I've always kind of had it in my heart and then Jeremiah finally was like, all right, well... I'll let you in on, you know, on something, but I don't know if you're going to like it. And it's just, it was really eye-opening, and I was like, this is how I felt for my entire life, and I never knew that, you know, this was real. Well, it is real, and, and um, a lot of people have the experience that they've always felt this way when they hear this message. A lot of people do, have, and, and I, I think that that's probably because somehow we, we know it in our genetics, We'd, we just, you have to hear it to to, um, to understand it. Now, by that, do you mean the, the, the racial message? Yes. Well, Bill, doesn't the Bible say that Yahweh, because he's inside us, he also wrote his laws in our hearts? Well, right. Genetically, we should know the truth. Right, but a lot of us don't want to wake up to it. And they reject it. And that doesn't mean that their genes are bad. It just means that they're still poisoned by the, the um, by the world. And that's how I was for a very, very long time. And my, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm my to concept of the, uh, you know, uh, of this it, it coming to the, you know, the end time or however you want to put it, um, sure, this, this beast system could probably drag on for as, as long as they can keep, you know, telling their lies. You know, who, who knows how long? But um, when you look at it from the aspect of the the uh, whether our race 
is going to survive this beast system. Yahweh said that, you know, he will, like there was eight people left when he saved Noah and his family. You know, if, if you know, the decimation of our, it, it all depends on how fast our race is disappearing. I don't think it's dependent on whether or not, uh, you know, how how fast the system collapses, although I guess it would in retrospect if that's what is discussed in Revelation when we hear the cry that Babylon, Babylon has fallen. But I don't see how Babylon can continue on. The system cannot survive without us. We're the ones who support it. Well, well, right, and I wrote that in my, um, I, I think the immigration problem in Bible prophecy at the end of it, or, or maybe it was in Luke, that, that Luke pamphlet I did, translating Luke, yeah, you know, the kingdom of heaven one, uh, I can't, Luke 16, Luke 16, 16 to 18, what, where it says that the violent ones try to squeeze their way into the kingdom of heaven, but, but that Yahweh would never um, divorce his wife to marry another, and that's a real good kingdom kingdom parable. Well, well, um, when when enough white people are put out of the system by this economy that caters to, to brown people, that then it and and or enough of us come out voluntarily, that it has to crash because the, the, those the Africans and the Mexicans and they've never been able to maintain anything viable. Their entire history, they've never maintained anything viable. And, and everything they touch grows corrupt. Black is really a plague. And, and there's no difference, there's no disparity between Yahweh's creation and, and, and natural truth and, and the things that our most ancient ancestors believed and, and God's word. There's no disparity in those things. And, and the darker this country becomes, the more plague-ridden it's going to be. And it, it has to crumble. It has to fall. Is right. Because they've never maintained anything. They've never been able to maintain anything. Jews are kidding themselves, thinking that they could be, become the masters of a brown world. When enough of us come out of the system, you're right, Matt, it has to crumble. But I think that more of us are going to be forced out of the system than to come out of it voluntarily. And, and that's a vehicle to wake people up. It happens all the time. But most of the people that, that have be, become awakened to this message have become awakened to it because they suffered some calamity in their life, and, and I'm one of them, right? And and um, that never would have woke up to it otherwise. Dress of circumstances, I've read before. Well, absolutely. I like to describe it that you, that you literally have to be hit in the head to wake up. Sometimes, yeah. From It seems that way for most people, that they have to have some calamity or some great adversity to bring their attention to it. Oh right! If I didn't, if I, if my middle class life didn't end and I didn't end up in prison, then I would have never woke up. I'm sure, enjoying the world too much. That's the way it is, and, and you don't really get to examine what you've been doing until you're taken out of it. Can't see the rat race from inside the box. You just can't see it. But well, right, this and that's exactly what I mean. Well, my brethren, I think I'm going to uh, shut things down here. Had an awesome discussion tonight. It was great to see a uh, quite a, a sizable room of people this evening. A wonderful thing to see. Yeah, it always is. Night, okay, Matt. Thank you. See you next time. Give Josh my love and Cheryl and God bless. God bless everyone. Is there anything else? Victor, you're awfully quiet tonight. You usually have something to say. Don't feel compelled. I could end the recording. <laughs> Nobody else has anything? I'm, I'm going to end it right here.
I mean, we could go talk in open house all night, right? That's where yeah. I really get started. Thank you and praise Yahweh.